He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, April 9, 2022. This show, a dream come true. My good pal, Tim Timkovich, Chief Judge of the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. That's right, just one step below the U.S. Supreme Court. Chief Judge Timkovich is my big guest, my good friend, my dear friend. He and Sue... We met at Colorado College. We played hoop together there. We had a lot of fun. Then we went to law school together. We were roommates, and we've been in touch forever. And now you get to understand why. But most importantly, Chief Judge Timkovich wants to speak out about Ukraine. He's got roots going back there, and he's done a lot of work for the government trying to bring democracy and rule of law to that beautiful land. He describes it like the Tenth Circuit, diverse, the heartland of Europe, and yet they have mountains where you can ski. Temco has been there four times as a government official, but his roots go way back to a little town where they honored him as royalty, Find out more about the Timkovich story from one of the most powerful men in Colorado who is in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. I'm also joined by another great friend, our troubadour, Dave Gunders, and he's got a beautiful song about tearing. It's tear-up time, and that means sometimes you have to get up and move as the people in Ukraine are trying to get to safety, and they're fighting so valiantly. First part of the interview with Tim Timkovich is about our life in Colorado, his family, my family. And then the last half hour, he speaks beautifully about Ukraine with knowledge. And Dave Gunders with Tear Up Time, it's just, again, the perfect song for this difficult time in America. But we ended on a happy note. Stay tuned. Listen to Chief Judge Tim Timkovich, our special guest in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Thank you. Gosh, it's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, Your Dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too 
decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Hi. How are you? Fine, thank you. It's so good of you to come on my podcast. Have you ever done a podcast before? First time. Looking forward to it. Well, I am too. We have zero constraints of the radio, which means no time limits. And I know you have no constraints as the chief judge of the Tenth Circuit. You can talk about anything, right, including pending cases. No, I understand. There are constraints, and I'll let you declare them, Your Honor. How are you, Temko? I'm doing well, Craig. Thanks for inviting me back on uh, your show. It's uh, great to uh, be reunited again. I know. And it's our favorite time of the year because we are sports fans. Did you happen to witness that MVP performance by Nikola Jokic all bloodied up, or are judges precluded from streaming on their laptops? No, we can't We can't stream at work today, although I have dipped into the Rockies home opener. Well, there's that. But last night, Jokic winning the MVP, my favorite sport. It used to be your favorite sport. I don't want to speak out of school, but isn't basketball still your favorite or no? Basketball's still my favorite. To watch uh, for everything? Let's go to I'd a probably, playoff game. I'd probably, I'd probably watch the Broncos um, over basketball, but let's go watch the Nuggets win it all this year. Absolutely. He got bloodied up. It was amazing. We have rare talent, and Russell Wilson was there uh, at the Nuggets game last night as they secured the playoff spot by beating Memphis, and then He's had opening day with Denver Prep League pitcher Kyle Freeland for the Rockies. I love this time of year, and my God, Temco, can you believe Tiger Woods? No, I. he was uh, even last time I looked, so I hope he uh, stays on top of the leaderboard. Holy cow, I have it all recorded, but that's okay, because I just love this time of year with the Masters. Have you ever been to Augusta? No, a couple of years ago, my nephew actually gave me two tickets to um, Augusta to watch the Masters. And um, uh, by the time the tickets rolled in, um, much to my chagrin, my wife, Suzanne, gave the tickets away to my two grown sons. And they ended up absconding with my tickets and going to the Masters in my place. Needless to say, I've not been able to get a replacement ticket since then. So if there are any kind viewers out there or listeners for 2023, let me know. There you go. I, uh, I'd i love to go there. I drove through there once with my son, and uh, we got uh, pretty close, but not through the gates. You could kind of see through the fence, but uh, you and I have known each other a long time, um, but we didn't know each other till college, but our families were kind of intertwined. Do you want to explain that? You probably know better than I do, because they it comes through my Uncle Mel, who went to North High, but 
he died when I was in elementary school. Um, what do you remember about your North High roots? Yeah, my dad, um, Michael Timkovich, um, whose father, uh, Michael Timkovich Sr., actually immigrated to this country from uh, what is now Ukraine, and we'll get back to that later. Um, he settled in North Denver, and my, my father was born and grew up in Globeville, which is a uh, now pretty hip neighborhood in Denver. Back, back then, it was populated by a lot of um, Eastern uh, European immigrants. And of course, the uh, Silvermans also have a similar immigrant um, story to tell. And um, the part of, of town where where um, Craig's family lived were mostly or uh, many populated with Eastern European Jewish immigrants. And uh, Craig could comment on that a bit. Uh, but my dad um, and Craig's um, uh, father and, and um, uh, uncle went to North High. Did your dad go? No, to, maybe, go to you North? know where they lived. Fourteen thirty-seven Quitman. They had a choice between West and North. Yeah. And my dad they went, to, went west. to West. No, and my uncle Mel went to North to yeah. be um, with. Yeah, he, he played baseball there. I think with your old yeah, man he, he, and yeah. Irv Brown, and we can get to Irv Brown because he's a Broomfield legend, just like you. But uh, Irv Brown shared with me his North High memories of my uncle being a great pitcher, but your dad was a superstar athlete too. Yeah, my dad um, played catcher uh, at North High, and he played played with Mel Silverman, and my uncle Bill Timkovich was also was an all-state first baseman for North um, and was actually a good baseball player in the family. Uh, my dad and Bill actually both went to Colorado State University, then known as the Aggies, and played uh, uh, college football in the uh, uh, early fifties, late forties. And so, my dad overlapped with um, with Craig's uh, uh, uncle Mel, who um, uh, died at a prematurely young age, but um, was probably one of the most brilliant um, and promising contemporary art artists in the country at the time he died. And I know Craig can have say more about that, but he was a, a, a brilliant, um, a brilliant uh, artist. And um, it's too bad that the uh, world of art lost him prematurely. Well, thanks for saying that. And he did the North High Yearbook. Everybody recognized his talent, and he would win at Denver Public School art contests. Kind of in his sleep, he was just gifted, and he was successful, which is hard to do mm -hmm. in the arts. So much so that. He provided for his two daughters that he left behind uh, when he died of esophageal cancer. And it's an amazing story, and I get to learn about it through guys like uh, your dad and your uncle who knew him. And, of course, my dad, who is a Denver lawyer. But uh, how was it you went from North Denver to being a legend of Broomfield, Colorado? Well, after my parents started a family, uh, they moved out of the uh, – kind of central Denver area and uh, moved up to Broomfield in 1956 when it was a brand new suburb and just um, broken ground. It was halfway between Boulder and Denver on the just open Boulder Denver Turnpike. Um, so it was a good location for getting up into the mountains, going over to Boulder down to, to Denver. And so my parents were one of the first 100 families to relocate to Broomfield. And uh, that's where I grew up. I went to K through 12 here in Broomfield, graduated from Broomfield uh, High School in uh, 1975. And uh, later, after some detours for college, law school, and my early professional career, um, I came back to Broomfield um, when I 
when I returned from Washington, D.C. and uh, raised my family here. Well, let's talk about those diversions because that's where I got to know you at the Colorado College. I transferred in my sophomore year. I think you were there already. And even though you've got me as chief judge of the Tenth Circuit, you know, just one level below the Supreme Court, I still am an upperclassman compared to you, both in undergraduate and law school. So I think that makes us about equal, don't you? Well, I always looked up to you, um, but I'd, I'd compare my jump shot to yours, and yours was pretty good. And that's a compliment. And I was tall. I'd take people by surprise. They expected you to shoot out there, but not necessarily me. And uh, I did. It was a lot of fun. We played hoops in Colorado College. You were a star at Broomfield High. I played at GW. And uh, we were competitive. Maybe we didn't win championships, but we won some big games, I thought. We did. And uh, tell me if this is correct, Craig, weren't you the leading scorer in CC history at the time of your graduation in 1978? I was a single season scoring leader. Thanks for bringing it up before I could. <laughs> no, that's nice. And, and and if you look at it, LeBron James is on the precipice of breaking Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's all-time record. But how fair is that really given three-pointers? You and I played before three-pointers counted for three, and we were making them out there all the time. That's true. It's one of the great injustices. Is that why you went into the justice system? Yeah, I needed to right the wrong of of the failure to have uh, retroactive three-pointers uh, counted for your total point scored. I think everything is different. And it's like pitching records now with designated hitter. I mean, the rules are different. The records aren't quite the same. But um, it's an important day. It's so good of you to come on my podcast because it's not every day that you have a new Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court, Katanji Brown Jackson. That's a pretty momentous day, don't you think? It is. It's always a momentous day when we get a new member of the Supreme Court. There's only been something like 155 of them uh, in our nation's history. And uh, it's, it's a very momentous day, although you'd have to be a law nerd to um, be interested in this. But um, although Justice Jackson's been confirmed, um, she has not been appointed yet. And that's because Justice Stephen Breyer is still an active member of the Supreme Court oh, yeah. and, will, and will be until at least uh, uh, late June. And does she keep her old job? Does she keep writing opinions on her lower circuit? I asked my wife the same question this morning, and I'm not sure. It would be it would be amusing if she could generate a few more opinions, and then uh, they could be appealed to the Supreme Court while she's a justice, and she'd have to watch her uh, colleagues uh, review her homework from the lower court. And why do you have to ask Sue? Of course, she's brilliant. I witnessed you marry her at Cho Chauve Chapel on the CC campus. How many years have you been married, for God's sake? Um, since 1980 for somebody that can do the math. Holy cow. So 42 years. That's unbelievable. And then uh, you've been a judge for so long. I knew you when you were a lawyer at Davis, Graham and Stubbs, Solicitor General, and then you got appointed by George W. Bush. And then you had to wait a while because the Senate was in flux. And then uh, you've been a judge for how long now? Uh, I, I 
was sworn in in 2003 um, in late June. So I'm pushing uh, on 19 years this year. And then how long the chief judge? I was at your investiture. Is that what makes it official or is it official before that? Yeah, I became chief judge in 2015 um, after my predecessor, um, Judge Mary Beck Briscoe, um, finished her term as, ju- as chief judge. That's so cool. But at the same time, it's a lot of responsibility. You are one step below the Supreme Court in charge of all the states that make up the Tenth Circuit. And these have been some challenging times with the pandemic. Are you the guy who makes the decisions uh, about when you're going to be open, when you're not? It's got to be a tough call. Yeah, that's been my responsibility to um, you know make those make those calls about um, keeping our courthouses open and how we um, allow the public to uh, access our buildings and how we've been able to um, hear cases during the um, last two years of the pandemic. And I would have to say that's been the biggest challenge I've had um, as chief judge, uh, in addition to some budget challenges that we've had and and some um, substantive issues that we've had in some of our uh, circuit states like uh, Oklahoma. Um, but the, but the uh, pandemic has really been the most um, significant issue that um, that not only as the, uh, the federal courts had to face, but um, every one of your viewers and listeners have had some similar experience in how, how to cope with the uh, pandemic, how to manage their lives, how to continue to um, uh, work and interact with friends, friends, families, and and loved ones, and so it, it has been a, a an amazing two years um, for the for the circuit court. I'm an appellate court um, judge, so we hear um, appeals that come up from the trial court level. So uh, we're an intermediate court. We don't sit. Uh, we don't have juries or sit in trials. And in that respect, Craig, um, the appellate court was um, uniquely situated to be able to. Um, engage more fully in remote work than a lot of other uh, professions. We were able to um, have oral arguments through um, the Zoom technology and confer with my colleagues um, through conference calls and, and Zoom calls. And um, I, for me personally, I came into the courthouse um, most of the time during the pandemic. It's a big building with uh, wide open spaces, and, and I had the luxury of being able to uh, continue to meet in person with my law clerks, um, and and my senior management team, uh, but uh, it it uh, certainly uh, is no substitute for um, in person interactions with your um, with your staff with your with your law clerks, um, as well as we cope through remote uh, judging. It's still not the same uh, as being in person, especially on our hardest and most challenging cases. I'll bet. There's nothing like the dynamics of lawyers getting together and talking. I imagine that applies for judges. I remember having you on the radio several times, always fascinating. And we will get to Ukraine, but you came on and talked about how close you and Neil Gorsuch were and your staffs, how you would go to retreats. That's all kind of been missing for the last couple of years, I would imagine. It has, and uh, we actually had our first in-person oral argument uh, just a few weeks ago in in mid-March, and it was nice to kind of reunite with my colleagues, um, most of whom I'd not seen for two years in person. And uh, it's a chance for the law clerks, um, for those judges around the circuit to come to Denver and get the experience of watching 
lawyers argue cases and, uh, and, and, and the learning experience that comes, comes with that. And we also had our first um, uh, Timkovich Gorsuch ski reunion in March, um, as Craig alluded to, um, while, while Neil Gorsuch had been a judge on the Tenth Circuit for um, 11 years before he was uh, nominated and, and confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court, we would routinely have a, a joint uh, ski trip to Breckenridge where all of our current and former law clerks were invited. And uh, finally, for the first time since um, uh, February of 2020, we, we, we had our uh, kind of reunion, uh, 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 law clerk reunion ski trip. Uh, Justice Gorsuch could not attend this year because it conflicted with the um, Supreme Court's oral argument calendar, but we had a, a, a great mini reunion with a lot of old friends. He's a Denver guy. If, if you ask him, where are you from? He's going to say Denver, right? He would say Denver for sure. That's and he so, still has he, he has a lot of family that remains in in uh, Colorado. He he um, still has some property um, here in Colorado, and he gets here quite a bit. I I remember his mother, who is a deputy DA in Denver. That's the path I chose. She wrote a book called "Are You Tough Enough?" about mm-hmm. her Denver experiences. Um, what a story! In podcast now, you can hear. Barking dogs in the background all the time. What about during oral arguments? I bet that happened a time or two. Yeah, we you know we didn't quite have um, peacocks and cats walking around um, during our Zoom oral arguments, but uh, we had people um, bringing arguments from the from Bermuda and from <laughs> overseas and uh, every state in, in the union because you were weren't confined by uh, geography. Um, uh, for, for my part, I said I stayed pretty close to home. I could do my arguments either from, from home or from my uh, chambers in down, downtown Denver at the Byron White uh, Courthouse. Um, and, and yes, we, we had a few uh, barking dogs now that I think about it. Um, but nothing super embarrassing, I'm, I'm happy to report. Byron White went to the University of Colorado. Then he went to Yale Law School, as I recall, with uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson. She's a Harvard undergrad and law school, and there are others in competition. And somebody said, we need somebody from a state school. And I say, yes. And I'm still <laughs> pissed about Gorsuch beating you out just because he's a little younger. I don't think that's right, and because uh, I'm older than you. But the bottom line is... Not only did we play basketball and become fast friends at Colorado College, we went on to be roommates at CU Law School, and that was one of the greatest uh, years of my life. In fact, it was probably about the time that Ronald Reagan was appointing Ann Burford uh, to EPA, right? I think it was around that time also, and um, I think that was the same year that the attempted assassination of Mm -hmm. uh, President Reagan occurred. I remember being at the UMC when I heard about that. I was shocked, mortified, and at the hands of a Colorado gunman. That's correct. Oh, boy. The memories. But uh, I want to talk to you about Ukraine. But before then, I don't want to leave the Supreme Court just just yet. Mm -hmm. I I, I want to, uh, one, uh, I I want to... ask you about the U.S. Supreme Court, and we'll eliminate Neil Gorsuch since he's a friend. If you were to say, hey, you know what? This is the most interesting judge for you to learn about, read about, because 
I'll tell you who I've been thinking about is uh, another Judge Jackson. I had Gary Jackson on a couple of weeks ago. He was so proud of Judge Katanji Jackson, um, and he became a Denver judge late in his life and served with distinction for the city of Denver. But Robert H. Jackson, I can't get enough of this guy, Timco. You probably know all about him because you were a solicitor general, and he was, and he was an attorney general, and then he was an associate justice, and then he took a leave of absence to prosecute at Nuremberg. What a life that guy had, and he never even went to law school. That's right. Um, Justice Jackson was the last Supreme Court justice not to uh, graduate from an accredited law school. He learned uh, law as an apprentice at the at the uh, uh, at the knee of an experienced practitioner in upstate New York, as I recall. Right. Um, I, and, I think and, it was his uncle's law firm that helped. Yeah, and and Justice Jackson to this day is considered one of the um, best writers, stylists that we've ever uh, ha- had on the Supreme Court, and he certainly had a breadth of experience and an impressive career. And for him to uh, be able to, to also put an explanation mark on the uh, trials at Nuremberg uh, was a capstone to his career. And um, I think uh, for most of us, Justice Jackson would be one of the t- top 10 uh, most important justices in Supreme Court history. Who would you put in your pantheon? Who are the best? What books should I read to really understand a guy? And before we leave this subject, maybe that was a better way. If you could have an older lawyer really show you the ropes and make sure you did your reading, maybe that's better than law school, although it would require an exceptional mentor, right? It it would, and and I'm sure you don't want to detour into law school education. There's a lot of... uh, reforms that we could uh, talk about there. But um, I think there is something to be said for um, a strong mentorship and um, certainly for the types of law that, that you do and I did um, where we were in trials, um, preparing witnesses. Um, you know, very, very little of it was really substantive law that we couldn't have learned um, in, in a different fashion than we did at law school. Uh, most of the law I learned was after law school and uh, I certainly felt I got a great foundation substantively at the University of Colorado School of Law. Um, but as, as a judge, I pick up areas of law that I never took a class in and didn't practice in or know anything about. And I, I pick it up and I learn it over the course of, of a case or two. And then you teach it at CU Law. You've had such an incredible career. Um, and you give back all the time. Mentoring, your clerks love you. What a career you've had. Uh, How long can you keep going with this chief judge thing? Last time I looked, it's a lifetime appointment. Uh, It's still a lifetime appointment, though. I suppose you could get uh, impeached uh, for for, um, misbehavior, but that hasn't happened yet. For streaming the nuggets? I hope not. Well, well, maybe. Um, But yeah, uh, part of the the joy of the um, judicial position – it can be it can be isolating because to some extent you have to disengage from from the active practice of law, obviously, and uh, to some extent you don't have the same kind of um, friends and relationships in the law community that you've had. Um, but a really healthy substitute for that for me has been my uh, law clerk uh, family. Um, these are law clerks are generally um, younger lawyers, um, newer lawyers that are just out of law school or have practiced a couple of years or have um, clerked for another judge and they come work for me for one year. Uh, and uh, I have four of them and uh, we 
we get four different people each year in chambers, and then uh, they go off to um, uh, to begin their careers. And I've I've have close to ninety ex clerks now, Craig, which is really hard to believe. Um, I have uh, one who's a, a judge on the um, Denver District Court, the federal court, uh, Judge Dan Domenico. I have another uh, former clerk uh, who's a judge on the uh, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, Patrick Bumate. And I have um, other clerks that are throughout the uh, state uh, and, and federal governments as lawyers, it's many in private practice, of course, um, some teaching. Uh, some uh, in the uh, ambassador diplomatic corps, some in private business. And uh, I've really tried hard to keep up with each and every one of them. And I'm just really, it's, I'm proud of what they're accomplishment, accomplishing. It's fun to watch their careers develop. And, um, you know, maybe like being a, a, a teacher or a professor, being a judge gets you a chance to, um, ha- you know, help shape somebody's uh, future career. And that's a very rewarding um, opportunity uh, for me and my colleagues. It's like that year I lived with you at Eisenhower Elementary, Steve Dye, you and me. I, I got mm-hmm. the same benefit. That's wonderful. Do you play Nerf basketball with them all day long? <laughs> we haven't done Nerf basketball, but we have we have other, other traditions. It's got to be so great. It's almost like that Robert H. Jackson mentorship. And that's why these people are standouts. You give them the individual attention. And I imagine since you've been doing it for decades now, you've got your shtick refined and you're probably getting better all the time. I hope so. Um, And uh, I I still um, uh, have the opportunity to attract great uh, men and women that want to come to Denver uh, and work for me. Um, many, of course, stay in Colorado and continue to practice law. And uh, I have uh, a really large uh, ex-clerk family uh, here in Colorado. Now, let's be honest. We're not getting any younger. You've been on that list for the Supreme Court time and again. There may be another uh, president who is compiling a list. Are you too damn old now? Craig, we're too damn old, regrettably. Oh, no. Okay, well, we'll have to do other things. Well, I wouldn't have left Colorado anyway. Who wants to go live in, in Washington and be a swamp swamp creature at the end of your career? Well, yeah, some people like that job. and <laughs> uh, But here's the thing. Uh, you might be more restricted on your podcast ability. I don't know. Judges, uh, justices do all sorts of things. And this is where it gets a little controversial because I know how personal this is and you can take it any direction you want. But when uh, I hear about Ukraine, I think about my buddy Tim Timkovich because you've spoken so movingly about your family being from there and about your experiences as chief judge and your work over there. You are dedicated to that. And before I let you launch... I just learned from talking to my Aunt Debbie, who you probably have met at all our family functions, she said, did you know that Grandma Rose's mother was married in Kiev and lived there for most of her life? I said, I did not know that. So turns out I've got some Ukrainian roots too, but I haven't really explored them. You have you already talked about the Timkoviches being from Ukraine, and I'm just starting to put things together. You guys have a lot of Y's in your name. Is that because it's Cyrillic or something? It's it's a country with a Cyrillic uh, alphabet, and it's got a 
predominantly Slavic heritage. So um, you're going to see the, a lot of that type of spelling. Uh, if you think of Vladimir Zelensky, you see a lot of them there, too. Yeah, he's got two Y's at the end of his name. I like that. Of course, I love Vladimir Zelensky. He's setting a hard standard for other Ashkenazi Jews to keep up with. You know, like, why don't you be more like Zelensky? I don't know, dear. You know, maybe he's got more energy. He's What a guy. I, I mean, uh, what can you say about Ukraine? It's 2022. This is ridiculous. What's going on there? And tell everybody how deep your roots go in Ukraine and what you've done in your lifetime to advance Ukrainian democracy. Yeah, I, you know, before before I um, start on that, I I did know Craig um, that you had some Ukrainian heritage, and um, I'd be happy to help you with some of your research. Um, as it comes to that, I think that the uh, Silverman family Im immigrated from a um, a town that would would be um, in northwest Ukraine today. So if, if everybody knows the uh, geography and um, major towns in Ukraine now because of the war, uh, but the Silvermans would have come from a, a town I don't know the name of it, but near Lviv in in uh, western Ukraine. And um, there's another Coloradan that I become. Uh, close to um, our Congressman Ed Perlmutter and his family um, also is from uh, a small town north of of uh, Lviv the, in western the, Ukraine. The, the Perlmutter side. The Perlmutter side. And right. so um, um, in, the, in the late 19th century, um, there was, there was um, a very large Jewish population in um, Poland, Belarus, and Ukraine, um, and many seeking a better life and um, um, more freedom and less... Uh, exposure to anti-Semitism um, emigrated to to the West and to the United States. And so um, that would explain the Silvermans and the uh, Perlmutters. Um, my great my grandfather, uh, Michael Temkevich, he lived in a small village called Chaikovici, which is um, south of Lviv. Um, so, Craig, we probably have family members within 100 miles of each other, and we never knew that. So this is toward the Poland border, because my grandpa Sam was my one uh, grandparent who uh, grew up in the old country, came as a little boy from Lodz, Lodz, yep. Poland, right. And, uh, you know, the borders um, have been somewhat fluid mm -hmm. uh, in Western Ukraine over, over the uh, centuries. And um, my grandfather, uh, Michael, he was able to um, uh, immigrate in uh, 1913. He was just six years old. He was born in uh, in 19... Uh, 1907 uh, near Lviv, and uh, he and his um, older sister, older brother, and mother um, were um, came came to the United States to be reunited with um, my great grandfather and my grandfather's older brother, who had both come to um, the United States a couple of years uh, before that in 1911 to try to make enough money to send back for the rest of the family. And uh, they started in uh, Houston, Texas, but quickly came to Colorado. They worked in the coal fields of um, near Trinidad uh, most immediately. Um, didn't like that lifestyle and moved to uh, to Denver, where my great-grandfather eventually opened a small business in Globeville. My um, grandfather and his two siblings and mother landed at Ellis Island in October of, of 1913. And unfortunately, my great-grandfather, grandmother Mary, 
had contracted a lung disease on the uh, sailing ship uh, from from uh, Liverpool and was hospitalized in the hospitals at Ellis Island um, and died a few days after um, they they landed there. Oh my um, gosh! So that left. So that's, that left uh, that's my, like Moses. I mean, you get to the promised left, land yeah, that, and you can't come in. Yeah, and my so that left my grandfather who was six years old and a. 13-year-old sister and 11-year-old brother to somehow make their way to mm. Denver, Colorado. And I never got the full story and how that happened, mm. um, but but I'm sure there was an immigrant support system that somehow got them on a on a train and they made it all the way to Denver, re- reunited with, um, with the father and the older brother. And um, my grandfather, uh, Michael, he ended up staying here. He, he, he married a, um, uh, a Denver um, woman, my, my, my uh, great-grandmother, Josie, who has Polish heritage, and then um, he uh, had several small businesses, and then mid-career, he became a cattle broker and worked at the Denver stock stockyards until his retirement in the uh, late 1960s. Did he stay active in the Colorado-Ukrainian community? No, not at all. Um, like many immigrants, um, on both my father and my mother's side, um, that was the past uh, they weren't interested in in the past. They left th- those countries for reasons, um, you know, economic or personal. And um, unlike uh, unlike some of us that are interested in rediscovering our roots, um, there was really just no strong interest in um, in maintaining connections with their um, with rel- you know their relatives and um, uh, village members uh, back in in the uh, old country. The only thing I knew about my Grand, about Ukraine was the name of the village from which uh, my grandfather had emigrated. And uh, I had no idea that there, about any relatives or extended family. And as I mentioned, I think on, on your program a couple of years ago, um, when I went to uh, Ukraine in, in 2018 to do a judicial education project, um, I had a chance to, um, uh, to visit the family village for the first time. As far as I know, any any member of my family had ever been there, and um, it was a, uh, a, a a visit that was put together by my um, Ukrainian hosts, my sponsors in the country, and my translator, um, Irina Chernyanko, had done some research on the Timkovich family, and had located a um, history teacher who taught um, in the um, in the uh, high school in this little town called Chaikovichi. And it's a little town. It's like, um, if you can imagine one of the tiniest towns in Colorado, say like San Luis, you know, one one, one road with shops and houses on both sides and not much else. That was uh, Chaikovichi, a really small farm community in in, uh, Western Ukraine. And uh, so we went, we took a a bus down with, uh, with an entourage of the people that were teaching with me. Uh, we we disembarked the bus in front of the high school, and there was a crowd of people there, and uh, they all spoke Ukrainian. I don't speak uh, Ukrainian, and my uh, translator turned to me and he said, "Judge Temkovich, these are your family." And it turns out it was a group of um, second and third cousins that um, can trace their um, their heritage back to the Temkoviches um, in 1913 in the in the um, 19th century. And so I had a chance to be re- reunited with family members that I never knew existed until uh, the moment we we were there, and it was a, it was a really emotional and uh, you know kind of satisfying experience for me. Um, I, after that um, reunion, I had a chance to 
um, uh, give a talk at a school assembly to the entire um, K through 12 school that um, where we were, my um, my grand my the building was old enough where my uh, grandfather's siblings would have gone to you know elementary school there in the uh, early 1900s. Um, I was able to walk down the street from the high school and visit the um, Ukrainian Orthodox Church where my um, grandfather was christened. Um, I was able actually to go visit the Ukrainian National Archives in Lviv and discover the uh, birth records to um, um, all, all of my um, uh, uh, grand, grandparents, great aunts, and great uncles that were still recorded in the Ukrainian uh, 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 archives in handwritten notations and the like. So um, basically, I went from knowing very little about my family history to uh, some, suddenly uh, knowing a lot and, and meeting family members that um, uh, had so much in common. I learned that the Timkovich family had actually um, been a founding member or a founding family of this um, community, which was founded in 1349. Um, so, Craig, knowing nothing about family history 100 years, I'm suddenly going back seven, 800 years of family history and learning that the Temkoviches were one of 12 um, families that founded this village and lived there um, in one fashion or another for uh, hundreds of years. Um, they were uh, they were small businessmen and landowners, and the custom of that part of the world at the time is if you own land, um, and certainly if you were a founding member, you were um, considered nobility. And it turns out that the um, Tipkovich family had a certificate of nobility that was um, actually hanging on the wall of the um, high school history the history teacher's um, uh, classroom, and. Uh, and they were able to give me a, a copy of the Timkovich coat of arms, which I now hang proudly in my uh, living room. Holy cow! What's better, being called King Timkovich or Chief Judge Timkovich? I kind I kind of like Counter Duke. For you, counter Craig. Duke. Yeah. What I is count, what is Counter Duke? Count. Oh, oh, Count or Duke? Either one. Like yes. Yeah. Count Dracula or Duke Ellington? Either one of those. Yeah, that, that's right. Okay, I, I like Duke. Now, did these people look like your relatives? Did you recognize them that way? They, they, they did. It was really an eerie resemblance of one of the um, men who was around my age to um, uh, one, of our, one of our cousins here in the United States. And when I showed my dad the photo I took, he said, that looks just like my Uncle Michael. <laughs> <laughs> And, and now, yeah, so there was very, very clearly and, some family and, and, resemblance. Now, I remember when I first met you that you were a great shooter, excellent guard. You got me the ball. That was part of my criteria. But you shot well, but you had those bunny hop steps. And did you see any of your third cousins running around? Did they have that distinctive Temco gait? No, I didn't see that. I think that might be uh, something I, I developed. Nice. It's more Broomfield born than anywhere near Lviv. But so we're talking the western part. So, I mean, this has to be bittersweet now with uh, your translator, Irina, and you were just there in 2018. And now these people who are loving you up, or I don't know what's happened to that high school. What's happened to that room where you're. Uh, your honorary uh, royalty uh, declaration exists. Yeah, um, I, I I don't have 
good contact information for them um, for now. And I stress for now, uh, people in Western Ukraine are relatively safe, um, but they are or soon will be in harm's, harm's way. And, you know, even even last week, Lviv was targeted for uh, some bombing and you, you don't know. Um, how how this um, war is going to roll out. You know, just just a little background, Craig. I've had a chance to visit Ukraine four times uh, as a judge. I first went there in 2007, and um, it was a a program put together by USAID Agency for International Development um, to try to develop um, the Ukrainian judiciary as really a prelude to Ukraine um, entering the uh, European Union. Uh, as a member. Um, but before they could do so, they, they needed to do some work on developing some of the um, political and judicial institutions that would make them a, 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 mem- a member of good standing. And um, my focus on the judiciary was to help develop uh, a judicial culture that embraced um, impartial justice, um, strong ethics, uh, free- freedom from conflicts of interest uh, and a sense of independence from the legislative and executive branches. You know, so some of the same features of of every Western democracy is really a strong judiciary where um, individual liberty, civil rights, and uh, property rights can be adjudicated in a a free, open, and fair fashion. Um, So that was the objective of my my first visit. And um, having gone there with uh, some of the family connection, I just fell in love uh, with the country, with their history, with their tradition, and with the uh, people that I was working working with, these um, judges that really wanted um, Ukraine to be a uh, prosperous and successful modern country. And the trajectory they were on um, was just really um, uh, visible to me. You know, my first visit in 2007, so much needed to be done. Uh, my last visit in 2019, um, they had made such progress. The um, uh, economic conditions in 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 uh, Kiev and in Western Ukraine were were demonstrably better than they had been um, 12 years before, and they were making all the moves that would really allow their um, their economy and their political system to just take off in, in a in a in a way that would um, um, c- kind of emulate the successful uh, former Soviet republics in Eastern Europe and the rest of Western Europe. And that was the sense of what the uh, what the people wanted. And that's the direction they were taking. They were taking. Well, Ukraine is a, go ahead. No, no, yeah, I was going to, I think you would answer this question with what you were about to say. I'm presuming your answer, but you said you fell in love with Ukraine. You've been there four times working. I'm so glad that you did that. But what was it? That made you fall in love? Would the average listener, would I fall in love? Would anybody say, wow, what, what is it that made you fall in love? You know, um, in, in a sense, uh, you know where Ukraine is on the map now. And yes. two months ago, most people couldn't have found, found it on a, on a map if you offered them $1,000. But it's, um, it, it has a, a, a history going all the way back to the um, uh, Greek Empire and the Roman Empire. There are um, there were Greek Greek trading colonies on the Black Sea, um, but Ukraine it's about um, almost the size of the Tenth Circuit. So you know, think think of uh, kind of Western America from you know Kansas to to Utah, and it's a country that um, 
uh, is known for um, um, uh, kind of the, the diversity of its uh, geography. It has it has a mountainous area, the Carpathians in the west, that includes ski areas. It has some of the richest um, farm country in the world and produces about 30% of the world's grain exports until the war. Um, it borders on the Black Sea, so it has um, kind of a beach and um, uh, and uh, and uh, seafaring experience. Uh, it's um, the the town, the the city of Kiev is one of the oldest um, capitals in Europe. It actually is older than Moscow. Um, the Ukrainian um, Slavic heritage pre predates the. Um, the first Russian empire and certainly the Soviet Union. And so there's a strong sense of, of Ukraine Ukraine as a nation that goes back a thousand years. And certainly the last um, couple decades since independence in 1991, you've seen a resurgence in that in uh, uh, Ukrainian nationalism. So it's got some you know beautiful and diverse geographical resources. It's got this rich uh, history. Um, it has this wonderful kind of emerging economy uh, that I was starting to see. It has um, you know, kind of an industrial and, and um, coal, coal economy in eastern Ukraine that's under uh, Russian attack. Um, Lviv was turning into kind of a, um, a technology center. And um, uh, the, peop the people that I interacted with were, um, you know, very friendly and, and um, you know, interested in my, in my Ukrainian heritage and my story. And um, you know they wanted they wanted to to really be integrated into the um, kind of the, the Western European success story, and that's what they were uh, striving until until um, the last couple of years. The um, you know the, the the Russian you know we think of this um, current war that started a couple of weeks ago um, as something unique, but um, if you go back and just look at current. Um, modern Ukrainian history. Um, Ukraine had emerged as an independent country in 1991 after the Berlin Wall fell. Um, it had been one of the Soviet republics since um, since the end of World War II. But before that, uh, most of Western Ukraine is actually a part of Poland. Um, and Lviv, in fact, had been part of Poland. Um, that part of uh, Western Ukraine had been part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire in the uh, uh, 18th and 19th century, um, and before that had been uh, had been part part of um, uh, the Lithuanian Empire. Um, it had had um, always a strong national character, its own language, its own um, it, its own um, uh, alphabet and, and literature. But uh, it had, you know, Ukraine had the misfortune of being um, in the middle of a lot of uh, empires over the history of of, uh, of Western Europe. And Ukraine actually translated into um, uh, the into English means borderlands, and it's because uh, of its where it's kind of uniquely mm -hmm. situated in, in the middle of uh, of uh, Eastern Europe. But um, after independence, um, uh, the U Ukraine as a brand new country in 1992 um, also happened to possess 2,000 nuclear warheads. Um, because most of the uh, Soviet nuclear arsenal had been placed in um, in uh, in Western in the Western Soviet Union in Belarus and Ukraine, and in 1994, in exchange for giving up um, all of its nuclear warheads, um, Ukraine enter entered into an agreement with the 
United Kingdom, United States, uh, and the new Russian Federation that guaranteed the um, uh, the, the the borders of Ukraine and um, a dedication to its national sovereignty. Um, so uh, we made a deal with Ukraine in exchange for um, its warheads that um, there would be some guarantees of its uh, its national sovereignty and integrity, um, all of which is under attack um, now and actually since uh, 2014. If you fast forward from uh, 1991 in 2014, um, the Russia had helped install a um, pro-Moscow um, uh, government in uh, Ukraine. Um, the the, um, the president of Ukraine, a uh, fellow, fellow named Yanukovych, was um, was reneging on all the um, progress that had been made towards joining the um, European Union. And people uh, might pe know his uh, campaign guy, Paul Manafort. Keep going. Yeah, one of, yeah, one of his uh, one of his um, advisors was yes. uh, Paul, Paul Manafort for sure. Uh, the people rose up in um, in protest to these moves, and um, what's now known as the Revolution of Dignity occurred in mm -hmm. 2014, 2015, and. Uh, as a consequence of these national protests, um, the Ukrainian legislature, Rada, lost confidence in Yanukovych. Um, he ended up uh, resigning in disgrace and actually fled to the to Russia, where um, where he still is hiding hiding out somewhere. Um, at that point, um, after you know, after um, nearly 100 people had been uh, had been massacred in downtown Kiev, um, a new constitution was formed um, there. Their, their president after the Revolution of Dignity, the first one was uh, uh, President Poroshenko, um, who served his term until um, until 2019. And at that point, a little-known um, uh, actor named Vladimir Zelensky. Um, you know what other jobs he had besides being an actor? I do. He's, uh, he's a lawyer right. by training. Um, he grew up in eastern Ukraine. He's a of Jewish heritage, yeah, and then he was a stand-up comic and Comedian. basically was a star in the um, most popular um, uh, uh, series in, in Ukraine at the at the time, just before he ran for president. Servant called of Serv the people, right? Servant of the people, of course. A life imitating art. And uh, did you meet Poroshenko or any of the? I bet you met parliamentarians galore. Yeah, I met I met you know many many legislators um, and judges, of course. I did. Um, I was trying to organize a meeting with um, with President Zelensky. Um, I had a trip planned for um, early July of this year, 2022. I was going to visit the country. Um, I was hoping that um, I could do a rule of law program there with um, with my uh, former colleague, Justice Gorsuch, uh, who um, helped me last year by de delivering a um, commencement address for um, Kharkiv University Law School via wow. Zoom, and we were going to do an in-person country visit. And of course, all that's been uh, disrupted. And um, you know, you you did mention um, my translator, uh, uh, Ms. Chernyanko. Um, she um, the first couple of weeks of the um, of the war in late February was trying to um, remain in Kiev because she had an elderly mother who needed who needed help, and um, uh, I was very, very um, fearful for her her safety, and I still am. Uh, but she was able to evacuate from uh, Kiev a couple of weeks ago, and is at least um, out of immediate harm's way. Um, 
there are justices that I interacted with and met in Kiev who are on the equivalent of their um, circuit courts of appeal. They call it the Supreme Court, but it would be more like the job I had. Six weeks ago, they were wearing robes and deciding cases like I do. Um, now they're wearing fatigues and carrying automatic weapons in uh, downtown Kiev defending their homeland. I've seen uh, pictures and, and descriptions of, of their story. And it's just remarkable if you think about the uh, thin line between civilization and chaos and how quickly your life can change, um, as it has for so many Ukrainians over the last uh, month and a half. Um, but I think um, you and most of our listeners can really be inspired by the um, leadership and courage that we've seen um, from President Zelensky and uh, his staff and his military and the ordinary uh, people of Ukraine that really have have risen up to say we you know we are one people we are one country um, and we're going to fight for our freedom and our sovereignty um, something that 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 all of us in our our country's history have have had to do at one time or another. How does the legal system go on during wartime? Are they still processing their cases? What happens if somebody? Uh, burglarizes uh, another person's home or commits a violent crime? Uh, are are the jails still functioning? Did, do you have any idea? Well, we're in the middle of a shooting war uh, in Europe, and, and you think, um, you know, not just this, this war, but uh, wars uh, throughout Europe and certainly as recently as, as uh, World War II. Um, this is the first shooting war in in uh, in. Uh, in Central Europe since 1945. Um, two weeks into the uh, invasion, even while the Russians were camped fairly closely to Kiev, the judicial system uh, was still functioning. Jud justices, judges were still uh, going to work um, and trying to uh, accommodate um, uh, uh, handling these cases, even despite the um, uh, the, da the danger and, and the war. So um, I, I can't answer that specifically because um, it's unclear how the criminal justice system is working. Obviously, the country uh, is under martial law, and with that comes, um, you know, many, many, many rules and regulations, and you know, kind of military enforcement of of, of the commands of the uh, the defense of of the homeland. Um, in Western Ukraine, which has been uh, hit less hard, um, I understand from my country contacts that um, they're continuing as best they can with. Um, uh, with the work of the judiciary, um, you know the political system still needs to work. Uh, you know the, the, these problems don't go away, and you know certainly the crisis of maintaining municipal services, making sure that uh, uh, supply lines of food and medicine continue to be um, brought into the country. Um, you know farmers are st still need to plant crops, and um, I'm sure stories will be written by those who are on the ground that have a better. Uh, description of it, but it must be surreal for some people to um, uh, to see what's happening in eastern Ukraine and then um, still be relatively untouched in, in western Ukraine. I'm still trying to figure it out. And part of it you brought up that uh, the, the city that your family was royalty dates back to 1349, such a concept for people like us who were born in Colorado which, what, 1876, we became a state and not that yeah. civilized uh, until a couple decades before that. Um, 
And then you go to Jerusalem, and it's 3,000 years old. You really get a sense of history. Yes. So uh, I'm trying to figure out if part of this is religious, sort of like Jerusalem, which is a difficult city, Kiev, and Ukrainians call it Kiev, Russians call it Kiev. It's the heart of the church, right? And big events happened there long before Moscow even existed. And so is any of this tied up with religion? Uh, I mean, does, a, does, a, does Putin need Kiev to be fulfilled since it's at the heart of uh, Eastern Orthodox Russian religion? Yeah, you know, I'll be the last one to try to psychoanalyze uh, Vladimir Putin, but um, if you look back through Ukrainian history, um, in right around the year 1000, uh, there was a kind of the, their most famous um, early historical figure was a, a leader called Yaroslav the Great, uh, and he he actually converted uh, to Christianity and kind of founded the first Christian uh, church in uh, in Ukraine in Kiev, and actually built a cathedral called Saint Sophia, a beautiful cathedral that still stands in uh, downtown central Kiev with the uh, brilliant yellow uh, top and kind of the uh, Byzantine architecture. And so, um, you know, er early Ukraine was um, uh, kind of found, founded with uh, kind of a Christian heritage. Um, the dominant um, uh, part of Christianity was the, was the uh, settlers from the Greek Orthodox Church that came up from, uh, from Istanbul and, and Turkey and that part of the uh, Byzantine Empire. And um, over the years, um, the, you know, it's been a kind of a, a Catholic uh, Orthodox um, background, but there's now, there's a, 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 a branch called the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, and there's one called the Russian Orthodox Church. And um, they, they're very similar, but they have some distinct distinctions. But mo most of the differences are cultural rather than, than religious. And so there may be some sense um, over the last 50 years that, you know, the part of Ukrainian nationalism has been to kind of establish its own unique um, Orthodox tradition as a part of the church. Um, but really, really, you know, anyone that would say that the uh, kind, of, kind of the, the Russian um, invasion has has much or anything to do with with the um, Orthodox Church is, is, is really missing missing much. Um, Ukraine does have about 20% of its population that are ethnic uh, Russians. Um, there's a re there's a reason for that and it's not a very um, it's not a very very pleasant history um, when the when when the um, when the Soviet Union established itself in um, after the Russian Revolution in 1917, um, Ukraine was a free country for about four years um, after World War one and and had kind of retained its its uh, sovereignty from Poland. Um, the Soviet Union conquered it in 1921. Kind of the red or red Russians, the Bolsheviks versus the white Russians, and then um, in, incorporated uh, most of Ukraine into the Soviet Union. Um, during the 30s, um, a lot of the Ukrainian um, um, middle class was perceived as a threat to Stalin's um, rule, and he went out on a systematic uh, uh, program to starve uh, much of central U Ukraine. He created a man-made famine that killed around 4 million people in 1932 and 1933. It's oh. called the Holomador. Um, and it's one of the most brutal pieces of genocide 
in in uh, world history. Um, that was followed by uh, right, but, but but why? Why deliberately starve the Ukrainians? What was the beef about? Because they didn't like totalitarianism. Um, that part of Ukraine had a. Um, they were resisting collectivization. Um, you know the, the Marxist tenets of of Stalin and the uh, communist regime was uh, collected by agriculture, mm-hmm. and um, the Ukrainian. Uh, middle class farmers resisted that they ha- they had their own property they had their own um, their their cattle their own um, trading system and that was a threat to the entire Marxist ideology uh, of Stalin and uh, Stalin was a devout Marxist he took it seriously and he believed that it was the um, it was the um, march of history and the threat of the of the middle class Ukrainians he called he called them kulaks. Uh, and the Kulak was was a threat to the entire Marxist project. And um, one thing we know about Stalin is that um, um, as a true believer, um, he didn't care what the body count was. What mattered was to eliminate the political threat and um, the collateral damage to getting rid of uh, the collateral um, the, the threat was, um, you know, four million people that literally were di- dying in the streets, um, you know, between between uh, Kiev and Lviv in the 1930s. And now Vladimir Putin venerates him. It, it seems like a brotherly conflict in a way, but maybe it's my prosecution background, Temko, but I see it as sort of domestic violence that some cad married a beautiful woman and he abused her and then she got her freedom and she was incredibly successful. She went to school. She had a family. She was in love. She was blossoming. And her old lover is saying, no, you're not getting away from me. I, don't, I, I can't live with you next door being this successful and happy. I'm going to mess you up because you had the temerity to leave me. Is that what it's about? It almost feels like a jealous old lover. Well, if you're going to further your domestic... Um your 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 that metaphor you'd have a a case of domestic domestic violence with what's uh, what's going on now mm-hmm. and you know it it there the, the you know there are geopolitical um reasons for this i i alluded to earlier about the um the you know ukraine gave up probably the one um piece of deterrence that, mm-hmm. which if, if it had captive would have um you know, preserved its sovereignty. If they, um, and, and I was told this by people when I visited there over the years that they wish they would have held back one nuclear bomb. You know, as as the as the uh, Russian threat can, you know, started to manifest itself, beginning with the um, uh, the rise of, of of Putin in 2001. In 2006, um, uh, President Putin started to make claims on um, on Ukraine, and of course, in 20 in 2014, he invaded. Uh, eastern Ukraine, the Donbass, and and Crimea, just after the uh, Sochi Olympics. So, um, at that point, really, the West had a couple of choices to make. Um, and I, I, you know, history will, remains to to be written on how and why this happened. Um, certainly, um, since 1994, um, the protection of Ukraine required a uh, some measure of uh, of Western, NATO, and Ukrainian efforts to deter uh, an invasion that required the creation of a Ukrainian military with adequate supplies and uh, weapons to to be a, a credible uh, deterrent to Russia. 
Um, and in a sense, Ukraine was left in a, in a bit of a no man's land because um, it was not a member of, of NATO, uh, but it was still, you know, considered a threat um, uh, ostensibly to uh, to Russia. It seems a little implausible to me that that Ukraine ever had any designs on Russian uh, territory. Um, but anyway, I guess my point was that the um, our deterrence model failed and it failed spectacularly. Uh, and we're now left with the worst of, of all worlds. You have a shooting war in Ukraine. You have, um, uh, you have, uh, you know, the, the idea of, of, of a kind of a nuclear brinksmanship um, because of the war, you have the prospect of a global recession uh, because of the, um, ripple effects of what's going on and it, you know if you if you look at it it seems that um, maybe a little better um, deterrent model with with Ukraine could have saved so much in, in lives and and treasures in in pre- preventing this and um, um, I'll be interested in the military and um, military historians the um, foreign policy experts on how how they uh, will me- measure you know kind of Western and American policy towards Ukraine. Uh, given what's happened in the last six weeks. I guess it matters who writes the story, right? Who writes the history? I've been listening to Hamilton, thinking about Ukraine and how they're fighting for glory, putting it all on the line. It's just incredible to me that this kind of battle can take place. And am I wrong to see it as a battle between democracy and tyranny? These are really, uh, this really is the conflict of humanity uh, rearing its head again in 2022. Yeah, it's a, it's a sad old story, and and uh, certainly the um, I think many 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 of us didn't believe that we'd have have to witness the brutality of of war. It certainly comes into our living rooms uh, every day now because of social media and the ubiquitousness of um, of cameras and, and video. And uh, it, it really is stomach churning to watch some of the images that uh, that that come from Ukraine, and um, you know nobody's gonna nobody can predict um, what the outcome uh, will, will be and and how long how long this conflict will last and what a what a what a resolution of it um, means. It's just a very dangerous time for uh, not only Ukraine but for Western. Um, Europe and for the United States. Yeah, Western civilization. But what has shocked and amazed and really exhilarated me and depressed me because I see Ukraine and I've been talking to people on my podcast elsewhere. This was Western Europe. This is not the third world. Because of your input and others, this was rapidly on its way to being a community like Broomfield or Denver, maybe not quite like that, but getting there with all the conveniences and all the greatness that modern times can offer, and now to have it snatched away, is it's just shocking to me. And uh, I really want these guys to win. And when you see the Ukrainians, their spirit, their intelligence, their courage— I mean, you've been there so many times, but it's amazing their spirit, don't you think? Yeah, and I, I, I tried to allude to earlier this um, evolving sense of Ukrainian nationalism that I saw um, over over my visits and talking with people that were kind of there at the founding of in, independence. And 
what really crystallized, I think, more than anything, the the se sense of, of Ukrainian um, spirit, as you put it, was the um, first invasion by Russia in 2014. And I think at that point, uh, many Ukrainians saw that um, everything they were working for was at risk. Uh, and it really brought a kind of a spirit of unity to the country um, in, 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 in the in the fight they've had since 2014 against um, against Russia, and maybe Craig, that was the X factor. You know that development of of this spirit that mm -hmm. then really manifested itself this uh, in the last few few weeks when they were faced with the ex existential threat to their nationhood. And isn't it testimony to their progress as a society that Ukraine, which had you know, its own complicated history with anti-Semitism, like most of Europe did, they had progressed to the point where all people were kind of tolerated, and they really did overwhelmingly elect this little Jewish comedian, lawyer, to be president. It didn't matter to them. And that had to be a little upsetting to Putin, too. You know, and in addition to Zelensky, their prime minister two years ago was of Jew Jewish heritage. So um, there were two countries in the world in 2020 that had the top two political positions held by uh, people of Jewish heritage. That was Ukraine and Israel. There you go. Yeah. And you know what I've been thinking about, Temko, because you deal with it all the time? immutable characteristics, because traditionally the law doesn't allow discrimination based on something that you were born with, like your skin color or uh, uh, your, your appearance, uh, your disability. But it's always been thrown in their national origin. And as we converse, it's like you and I, we bond over Colorado, right? And yeah. we have a Colorado origin story that we are proud of. And it's interesting to me, I don't know if you've thought about it a lot, that the immutability of national origin and how important that is in civilized society and how we react to that. Yes, um, you know, that, you know the, the history of, of not just the United States, but any country is wrapped up in national identity and, uh, and you know, Nation states exist, community exists in large part because of the commonalities that they have, and most of that, of course, would be their um, their kind of historical togetherness. Um, the United States is, is really remarkable as kind of the first uh, large multicultural, multinational country, and uh, you know we don't have to get far from uh, see far from this conversation to see how hard it is uh, to pull together because there are. Um, often centrifugal forces that mm -hmm. uh, kind of, you know, push apart um, people based on their race or their national origin, their religion, ethnicity, and the like. And um, holding the, holding that together uh, uh, is a challenge. So it is both a strength and a weakness in in uh, most countries. Um, we've always prided ourselves with e pluribus unum in this country, um, but it's always been a work in, in progress, and there are many. Um, you know, divisive forces that uh, that our country, um, you know, faces as a contemporary challenge. We sure do. And right now, uh, both parties seem to be fairly united in backing Ukraine against Russia. Russia seems so obviously evil and wrong, and this is Putin's war. 
and a pox on his house, but there are grumblings that you hear occasionally, and uh, it, it goes like this. Well, Chief Judge Timkovich or Duke Timkovich, whatever you want to call yourself, you're part of the problem because you were one of those people who went over there, offered the West and this alternative in the wrong part of the world. You led Ukraine on, and you should have never done that. You should have never gotten them ready for the European Union or NATO or anything like that because this was inevitable. Russia would react. You've probably heard that. I say bullshit. I mean, Ukraine had the right to determine for itself what it wanted, and this is what they wanted. But uh, you've heard that argument. You hear a lot of arguments. Do you dismiss that out of hand, or what? how do you react? Uh, no, I, I think I, I said earlier, I don't think um, this war was inevitable. In fact, in fact I think it was uh, very avoidable. And um, you know, I think it, it's a policy failure. Uh, regrettably, by the West, and and uh, you know now, now we are where we are, and um, you know the exits um, really um, seen through a, a mirror darkly. It's just, it's hard to it's hard to uh, project how this will will pull out. But um, no, it was not an inevitable. It, it was entirely preventable. Right, and it's like blaming the victim. Well, you shouldn't have been out that late at night. You should not have parked your car there. Come on, somebody smashed my car windows and broke it in. They're the bad guy. And I want to go after Putin. I want to do it personally. I'm even older than you, and I want to get involved. I know other lawyers who want to get involved with uh, lawyers, money, and I've heard the Ukrainians say, give us guns. What do you know? What Americans can do to help? Yeah, there are um, really a lot of um, uh, organizations that um, that are doing everything they can to help. Um, uh, Lutheran World Relief is one. There, are, um, Ukrainian Catholic University in Lviv, um, I think, is a very credible charity that's getting um, uh, shelter and food to people. And uh, there, there are a few others, and certainly, if your listeners are interested, we can um, try to try to point them in, in the uh, in the direction. Um, I hope that someday, Craig, I get to go back and, and uh, help them rebuild. Uh, after I want to go with over. you. I want to see where my maternal grandparents came from. I mean, I'm yeah. going to organize. When the coast is clear, I'm going to organize a trip back to Ukraine, and you'll be first on my invitation list. Well, thank you. Can I can I ask you? Have you heard of any lawyers' organization, uh, judicial, something we can do to make uh, our voices and our efforts and our money for rule of law in Ukraine? Isn't that what they're fighting for, among other things? It is. Um, I'm a member of the Ukrainian American. Um, uh, Bar Association. So there is an American legal organization that's um, dedicated to, you know, raising awareness of Ukrainian issues. And now, um, as a consequence of the war, trying to organize uh, relief efforts. And uh, they've, they've, they have, uh, you can, you can Google that organization and they have, they have an opportunity, they have ways that you can, um, you can contribute to the, um, to the effort as well. All right. When I go back, just a suggestion. I was a prosecutor for a long time. You were in the Colorado Attorney General's office. We overlapped. Somebody's got to prosecute these war crimes. And God willing, this will be over soon. And certain people 
should face justice over this. Brings us back to Robert Jackson. I mean, these atrocities, Tim Co. I don't know. Can you watch it every night? Doesn't it affect your mood? It does mine. It's it's just stomach wrenching to to watch, and you know, so many people that I know that are now in harm's way, and um, maybe some who have already been um, been been killed in the war. So it's it's uh, it's difficult to watch. Um, you know, uh, this is probably a, a bigger topic than we can uh, chew on today, but we created international organizations after World War II um, to, you know, try to try to stop, prevent wars, to adjudicate um, the, the law of war and conflict. And to, to some extent, a lot of the, you know, a lot of those um, uh, institutions that were put together um you know, President Zelensky made an address to the United Nations pleading for them to um, recognize aggression and, you know, ch- change the way they're doing business to, um, to, to tailor it to what the modern uh, circumstances are like. And so, you know, what, after this, whether there's going to be any kind of um, institutional response uh, remains, remains to be seen, but there are some institutions and processes that um, were designed to um, to analyze these questions. We had um, a war crimes tribunal after the um, after the conflict in Serbia and uh, and Croatia and there were people that were tried for um, for war crimes and crimes against humanities um, from that that conflict which was just what the early um, 2000 early 1990s. Yeah, it's gone way too far. And uh, whether Biden took it back or not, this man should not stay in power. And you know Joe Biden meant it because he used God. And I think he's a religious guy. And I think people of goodwill recognize that. We have a SWAT situation. You know, it's sort of like Scarface. And I'm worried. You know, I prosecuted a lot of people for felony menacing. You put people in imminent fear of serious bodily injury or death with it deadly weapon when he starts talking about nukes wow it's, it scares me and uh, i don't know if your boys ask you about it but i try to reassure them well we have challenges you know our dads did and we had duck and cover drills but this isn't a normal time is it, it it's different it, it feels more frightening yeah i mean i i think from a mood wise you feel like this is the um the Cuban Missile Crisis mm-hmm. scenario, except that took place covertly. This is uh, uh, out in out in the public, right? With people dying every day, real children. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm thinking about your ancestors, six years old, thirteen, and there mm-hmm. are kids traveling across Ukraine under similar circumstances. But let's end on a positive note because I have interviewed some people who are doing relief work in Poland, JCC of Krakow. J Roots mm-hmm. has become a, a great organization, flooding them with uh, buses and transportation and resources. Hasn't Poland really stepped up? Isn't that encouraging to see how beautiful they are? And they kind of got a bad rap during World War II, but Central Europe, the places where democracy has been allowed to flourish, the world can change, right? Uh, it, it can, and uh, Poland has an interesting and complex history. Um, I visited there in uh, 
in 2019 after my um, my Ukrainian visit. And um, uh, Pol- Poland, Belarus, and Ukraine um, have really a complicated history. And over the last hundred years, um, they've unfortunately been kind of in the middle of the worst of the worst conflicts. And I commend to you and your listeners a book by uh, Timothy Snyder called Bloodlands. And it traces the history, the political um, history um, of those three countries from uh, 1921 till 1946 and um, go, goes through the um, the Nazi invasion, the Soviet invasion, the Holocaust, um, the political compromises, the moral compromises that were made by the peoples in these uh, in these regions. And you know, just end on a positive note. Um, Ukraine, Ukraine, um, a, a Ukrainian lawyer drafted the first modern constitution uh, in what's now Ukraine in the early 1800s. And I think um, from a historical standpoint, um, and when I visited the um, really a, a phenomenal um, Polish uh, Jewish Memorial Museum in, in uh, Warsaw, it's just an incredible um, uh, piece of Polish history. And really for hundreds of years, the Jewish and Christian communities in Poland really ex- um, uh, existed side by side. And there was uh, a lot more to- religious tolerance than 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 we think of of, of the, more recently when the anti-Semitism t- took root um, in the 30s and then certainly when the Nazis came in and tried to wipe out as many Jews as they could in in um, in Poland and Ukraine. You know, more 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 Jews were killed in in Poland uh, and Ukraine than any place else in uh, in uh, in Europe. And so it's a re- really really good story about the uh, complex history of that part of of Central Europe, but. Um, we now have a, a Jewish president of uh, Ukraine. Um, I think I think Poland is one of the most um, uh, dynamic economies in uh, Central Europe. They have functioning uh, political systems, um, including the judiciary. Uh, they and they have uh, you know the prospects of of um, of you know being one of the major major nation states in Europe and the uh, the. the Efforts that they've taken to welcome the Ukrainian refugees, um, maybe over two million people uh, are currently in Poland. Ukrainian people are in, in Poland fleeing uh, the violence, and for a country to, uh, you know, kind of take on that uh, kind of effort, um, you know, with a few weeks um, notice is, is is truly incredible. And you have to give that country a lot of credit for realizing the threat um, that they see now with the invasion. And the threat, the threat of a um, kind of the Ru- Russian military on the Polish border, has certainly uh, concentrated their their efforts and their willingness to uh, to uh, fight back. People really step up in times of trouble. I'm definitely going to get Bloodlands because I like Timothy Snyder. He speaks out about tyranny. Yale Law School guy, super smart. I can't wait to read that. But finally, I know you're not done with this, Timco. I mean. What are you going to do? What's your, if you could ideally have the future turn out the way you want, what will be your role with future Ukraine? Well, I, I think um, the um, Ukrainian spirit we've been talking about, the resistance to um, invasion and um, the, the the threat to their national uh, sovereignty is is has been quite impressive. And I don't see the Ukrainian people, no matter what happens, 
um, you know, succumbing to, um, you know, to long-term rule by an outsider. Um, so I expect the Ukrainian people to continue to fight for fight for a long time as best that they are able. And I hope that um, that there is a, a model, there is there is a scenario where we'll have an opportunity for them to to rebuild as a, as a free country. Um, it's gonna it's gonna take a, a long time to to recover from what's what's uh, is currently underway. And I just think the uh, you know the future is is uh, is murky and. We can only hope and pray for for the best and for the uh, people that are fighting for their uh, homeland. Well, now we need it to happen because you're taking me on a trip there as soon as you're able. And I'm going. And uh, I really appreciate your time. You are uh, passionate about this topic. Uh, Glory to Ukraine. I I think all the right-thinking people in the world, should this even be a tough call? I mean, this is is good against— evil isn't it it's a tough call because you have uh, david and goliath and and uh, goliath has um, 7000 nuclear warheads and um and his you know, arguments but, his arguments make no sense it's the ravings of a madman or, or am i missing something you you hear arguments all the time does he have any cogent arguments there putin i i think i think the uh the argument for for war uh, in Europe was um, weak and implausible for uh, you know since the fall of the uh, Berlin Wall since the end of the Cold War in 1991, and I don't think uh, uh, you know the arguments that uh, uh, that that support the conflict are any stronger now than they've been for 30 years. Right, they you you would say get out of here. This case was decided 30 years ago. Leave them alone. Anyway, I mean, it it seems like an open and shut case. I think you are very transparent. I hope I didn't violate any rules. I know you would never let me do that anyway. But uh, the bottom line is that uh, I love talking to you. I can't wait till we get back together now that the pandemic may be over. Um, And your final thoughts on the subject of the day. Well, I'm just really appreciative that you gave me a chance to um, talk about my experience uh, in in Ukraine, my chances to uh, visit the people and try to um, help help them develop a, a free and independent judicial system. And that's been interrupted, but I have hopefully have the chance to finish the job uh, in the in the future. All right, Timco, give my best to Sue and the boys, and uh, you are the best. Stay strong, and I'll see you soon. Thanks, Craig. Good luck to you. Okay, bye-bye. Michael, of course, is a great sponsor of my show, but more than that, he's my lawyer, my end-of-life planning lawyer, and I've got two dogs. What about you? I have two dogs right now as well. And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that. So I will write pet trusts, which is you can earmark money to take care of your pets. Um, You know, a lot of people, you know, they've got their dogs and they love their dogs. But then if somebody were to, you know, if if you were to pass away, you know, who's going to take your dogs? Who Who would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do. But like I grew up with dogs. And so if I were to pass away, then my 
parents or my siblings could take the dogs. So when you set up a pet trust, you can dictate who's going to get those dogs and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well. I like working with you and I think you are ahead of your time. You have 15 different locations. How cool is that? It's, it is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and you know meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them. And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them. Yep, and I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to. Tell us how people can get in touch with you. My direct phone number is 720-394-6887, or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule, you know, there's a book an appointment link on this on the website. All right, Michael Bailey, thank you. I've been fighting for Colorado crime victims for the last four decades. There's a great new Colorado law. It allows victims as far back as January 1, 1960 to hold accountable the perpetrators and the organizations that allowed it to happen. If you were sexually assaulted, now is the time to come forward. Call me anytime you are ready at 303-861-2800. Ask for Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. Troubadour, I think this is how we do it. I'm just back from a little spring break, so I'm not really sure. Welcome home, Craig. Thank you. I wish you could have been with me, but honestly, the bike ride I took, one, I don't think you could have kept up, and two, I think it might have been too frightening for you. What was frightening was watching your video bouncing around. Like I told you, every time I I look at your videos, I get nauseous. Well, I, I, I'm trying to do it all and keep my balance, but I rode effectively from Coral Gables to Miami Beach on one of those city bikes. First, I took one of the hotel bikes, which were worthless, and I locked it up at a grocery store, found Miami City bike. Now, it did happen to have some e-power, which really is a form of cheating. But when I got back <laughs> and I was going to go to the University of Miami and surprise my son. Guess what ran out of power? Guess <laughs> what really didn't work great without that e-power? So I, I did get a workout, my friend. So you had to pedal it? You had to, and what's it like pedaling one of those things without power? It's, uh, it's like a rocket ship up to 15 miles an hour. It's <laughs> like it gives you the juice. No, no, I'm saying was, is it harder to, to pedal if you have no power? Is it harder than, say, a regular oh, yeah, bike? Yeah, because there are no gears, but fortunately oh. it's Florida, so it's flat. Okay. And uh, anyway, I think those things should keep a charge longer, but that's where I was. And uh, I think it's the most exciting sports time of the year, not just because I did that huge bike ride all the way to Miami Beach. Can you appreciate this? Not really. I, I put my finger in the water. You have to go over... A big bridge. It's a single lane, so you can't really ride tandem or, God forbid, somebody's coming the wrong way. I don't know what would happen or if there's a bottle or if there's debris. There's some danger involved. Yeah. I wore a helmet. Especially when you're busy videoing your your <laughs> for your friend. I think maybe you were doing too much. I'm glad you didn't veer into traffic. 
Okay, you are probably oblivious about monumental sports events that happened this week. Are you? Kansas won. Yeah, that was Monday night. That was pretty cool. You know, I took my son and his friend and my wife out to a steakhouse in the Brickle. Have you ever heard of the Brickle down in Miami? No. It's unbelievable. It's like New York City, but it's Miami. Looked like 80 floor towers. Um, they were all over the place. Now, wait, what is the Brickle? It's an area of downtown Miami okay. that has shops and high-end uh, luxury high-rises. Right. It's the a- ones that haven't fallen over yet. It sounds Yiddish. It's a little Yiddish. All of Miami has a little bit of Yiddish, but a lot of South America. It's international. Mm. It really is. But what about Nikola Jokic? Did you hear what he did last night? I did not. Okay. Do you recall how many points I had scored my senior season in college in 25 games? I think you were averaging about 20 a game, I did, right? and mm-hmm. I had just over 500 points, which mm-hmm. was a milestone for me and a record mm-hmm. that I held until three-pointers came along, plus a lot of better players. <laughs> Nikola Jokic set a record for 2,000 points. Of course, he plays a lot more games, and he has a higher average, and he's the first guy ever to have 2,000 points, 1,000 rebounds, and 500 assists. In NBA history. Wow. What do you call that? A triple threat? There it is. He's ranked up there in all the key stats. You could call that the triple crown, but it's not record setting. That's in baseball, which it is baseball season now. Do you know what the triple crown is? uh, Yeah, if you give me a minute. (laughs) That's winning best batting average, most RBIs, most home runs. I think Mantle did that once. Anyway, I'll get Marshall Fogel on to talk about that. But the sports story of all times and the thing that makes us realize that anything is possible with God's grace because the human body has the capacity to heal. Witness Tiger Woods. Have you been following this? You're kidding. No. What's he doing? He's playing in the Masters, and he's competing. He was one under yesterday, and Good for as him. we amazing. speak, he's in contention in the second round. That is amazing. Yeah, they almost had to amputate his leg. This was just 14 months ago. Wow, yeah. Everybody was all teared up over that, which That's... brings to mind your song. Yes. Tear-up time, although I know it's tear-up time. It's tear-up time. But, but it's spelled the same way. It is spelled the same and way. And it's a sad song. It is a sad song. And, and yeah. the, the word could have a double meaning. Tear up time. Exactly. You're going to cry in your life. Shit's going to happen. Right. And in, and in this case, the, whatever happened is uh, involves tearing up roots and having to move on. Right. When you and I were talking about Ukraine, I thought maybe it would be appropriate to, oh, absolutely. to bring that song in. It's appropriate. In a lot of ways, and we'll get to Ukraine, but that's going to bring us down. But we will get there. I had an incident today that made me realize it was both tear up and tear up time. Can I show you what I brought to the studio? Show me. Now, maybe you've come over in the morning or seen me on my deck in a red robe. Do you remember that I like a red robe because it fit well? I see it right now. It's draped over your chair. Okay. I'm going to reach over here. And it's 
It's good cloth variety. You would, you're a witness to that, right? Terry cloth. Right. Hey, that's a punt. Because guess what happened? Really, I was sitting down for breakfast. Terry cloth. And guess what happened? Oh, it's got shredded by your dogs. No. It just fell apart. <laughs> it got torn. Yeah. I, I don't blame my dogs. That's what happens he's when, when you... Bone. He's not doing anything. To me. He's never eaten a robe. That's what happens when you wear a robe for 37 or, or 8 years. Right, it's tear-up time. I, yeah. <laughs> well, no, you want to keep it because it'll make a good rag. It'll make several good rags. You know what another word is for tear? Have you ever thought about that in a religious context? What happens when somebody dies... In a Jewish family, they tear the clothes, but they All use right. another word. Right. An it's rent. Rend. R-E-N-D. Rend, yes. And you know where you heard that word, rend? A heart-rending song, like your song, Tear Up Time. See, I'd never really thought of that. Thank you. Yeah, heart-rending. Yes, There's it is. a word for you. Word of the day, rend. Rend. All right. I have a couple of show ideas I want to run past you because they're kind of dedicated to you, okay? But I don't want to do them if they're not a good idea. I think that it's time you learn the world's greatest invention, which also has its downside. I know what it is. What? You want me to learn how to record a, yes. a, a television That's show? That's right, a DVR. Okay. Do you want to do that? Do you have you any mean, interest? I have no DVR. You probably do. It's built in. It's not the 1990s anymore. <laughs> okay. Everybody has DVR. Even at hotels, they have DVRs now. So that may be true. Oh, do you want to learn, or is that a waste of time? All because right. I will say that maybe you'll start binging everything. It's sort of like on demand, but it's stuff that you say, you know, I'm going to take a walk with Craig. I want to watch this. But it will ruin baseball because then you'll record it and you want to watch it fast, faster than it goes. Well, I got three times speed. You get all the enjoyment but without sitting there for so long. That's why it's sort of ruinous too. And, you know, on podcasts, ours included, they can play as half speed, two times speed, whatever they want, just on their smartphone. Well... I advise people speed me up because I <laughs> I, I've been told I'm a court reporter's dream. I mean, some lawyers talk too fast, not me. Well, that's good. It helps me understand what you're talking about. I try. But um, the answer is yes, I want to learn. Okay. Now, the other show topic for you, specifically you, because you give me grief. You make me seem like a conspiracy theory nut. Because I suggest that there is a devious, dastardly connection between Trump and Putin. And you say, come on, Craig, can I put on a guest and will you sit in and let him answer your questions? Are you open? Can I put you on a jury and will you be fair? Will you consider my witness? Yes. Okay. That's going to be dedicated to you. That's wonderful. Can I say another thing that's wonderful? All your music now on YouTube and Spotify. Tell people where to find that, how to find it. Thanks to Craig's producer, Bradley Stern. 
Uh, he helped me get everything. Well, and I say help me. He did it. Uh, he got all my music, which I had uh, up to until this point, uh, just put everything out on a CD, which is obsolete for most people who have no players anymore. Um, anyway, I asked him to put my music out there so that people could stream it. So it's on YouTube and you've already said Spotify and I don't even know all the other ones. Um, just subscribe to Dave Gunder's music. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, SoundCloud. It's all good. Yeah. I think you're going to get a Grammy someday. Did you watch the Grammys? I did not. I didn't even know they were on. This is the oblivious part of me as I was doing something else. I heard about them after the fact. What did you hear? I, I can't even remember. Just that they had happened. I can tell you that We Are by John Batiste. He put on the most kick-ass performance you don't stay up late enough or watch enough Stephen Colbert to appreciate John Baptiste, his musical director, but this dude is gifted. He's Dave great. Dunders. Oh, he's great. No, no, I've seen him before. Yeah. And he's yeah, got Steve. those New Orleans uh, Abs- roots as well. Big time. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I think he was part of the, um, there was a there was a series, um, Treme, the, the area in, in, New, in New Orleans, right? uh-huh. it, was, it was about this area and how it's, a, it's kind of a melting pot for different musical styles. He has a special aura about him and a spirit that comes through. But you talked about roots in your song. It relates to roots. And down south in that tropical climate, I noticed the roots come in different. At the University of Miami, there's an arboretum where they grow all kinds of trees from all over the world. And my son, Sam, was showing me around, and some of them were so fragrant, but the roots are the horizontal. The, oh, right. I've seen those. I know some of the live oaks will run them like that. But the ba- I saw the photo of Sam right. in, in front of a banyan tree. The well, roots- that was just one of them. But okay. generally yeah. speaking, the native trees there, the roots come out of the ground. They're very horizontal as right. opposed to digging deep, right. as we know in Colorado. There's probably nothing down there for them. If right. you think about that sandy soil, they probably like to collect stuff more like up at the top. But their roots are all touching and interconnected. It's a weird, interesting thing. Sam is taking environmental science, and that's a great place to go and study. It was great to see my boy. You know what that's about, to see your kid on a college campus. I like going to the dining hall. I like uh, breakfast there. <laughs> I said, my God, I'd gain 40 pounds if I ate here every day. Right, eating the mashed potatoes and right, all that uh, bad they stuff. They had the home fries. And uh, they had, you could have somebody make an omelet for you. Sam said, I don't stand in line for that. Okay, I will. <laughs> <laughs> you ate his, yeah, his portion said, and yours too. You make my bagel while I wait in this line, right? <laughs> See, if you have two, you can do more. But I love tear-up time. I mean, it's just beautiful. It's haunting. It's sad. And let's do talk about Ukraine and Putin's war and uh, this madman, this Meshuggah with big weapons. His atrocities continue. Our lives continue. And I worry that we just get numb to it. And I don't know. I I didn't think this could keep going on in April or in 2022, but it is, and maybe it will go on next month, and we'll just get used to it. But I don't see how we can see a crime being committed over and over and uh, 
no one can stop it. Well, that's the challenge. Some something has to happen, and diplomatically, that's I think you know that's a solution that still has to be. Um, you know, we still have to hope for for that. Um, otherwise, it's just too bleak to imagine. But I think somehow the fighting will stop, and you know, Russia's going to have to come to the table on that. Right, but in the meantime, it's sad. Your song "Tear Up Time." It's it's probably one of your best, but it's also one of your most pessimistic, sad songs. What were, what was the inspiration? Unless I'm getting too personal. No, I don't even. I don't remember. I don't remember specifically if that if how how autobiographical that was. Okay, really, good. no. Mm-mm. Good. It's no. It's just the song of someone someone in pain. Having to having to move on, you know, it was a relationship that had come unraveled, and um, that's what like that was bathroom. about. Like my bathroom, you know what a relationship I had. I mean, I got naked with that bathroom. Sometimes it's it's time to move on. Goodbye, red bathroom. Anyway, the shoulders are a little too big now. I had bigger shoulders back then, but I've never heard a better sad song from Dave Gunders than this. It's tear up time. Thank you, Troubadour. Thanks, Greg. Now, how long has it been since things were right, dear? Never a brighter light, and everything just went. Beyond hope, people do it all the time and follow that crooked line. And I do the same for you. Nothing more to do. So I'm looking in back. It's tear up time. Thinking those days gone forever. Searching inside and it's tear up time again Yeah, I'm looking way back, it's tear up time Follow my feet on down to the river Water runs deep, it's tear up time again Just the other night, seemed so real Got a bruised up heart, a little more time 
how you bring peace of mind to their life. So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go, you know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's, it's like the the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey, because who should have this? It's probably somebody close. Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael? Right. And if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to michaelbaileylawllc.com. And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael. 
Not that often our troubadour has a sad song like that. Tear up time, but it's beautiful, haunting, heart-rending song about difficult times. Ukraine, anytime people face violence, injuries, brutality, death, violence, just horrible. I know a little about that from my career. I just am never going to get used to it. It stirs an instinct to go after the bad guys. Vladimir Putin, I hope you're around for, I don't know, a few more days. That's it. Because I'll say you don't belong in power. And God, if you have any power over this, you know, people die every day of natural causes. And I do wish bad on Vladimir Putin. I'm taking sides in that dispute. I hope you are too. Thanks for listening. Really appreciate it. I'd love a five-star rating. I'd love a nice review. And tell a friend. If you like it, maybe they'd like it too. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.